Yeah, I think we may have lost uh, some of the elements of community as we've become globalized organizations. A lot of people are suffering a lot of different things. And I, I don't think that organizations have to be there to, to take care of someone from cradle to grave. Right. But I do think that we need to be able to, as leaders, have language that embodies multiple ways of being. Sometimes it's compassion, sometimes it's strength and clarity of boundary. But people uh, reducing suffering and fear in organizations is a, is a big thing. If you know how to do that, then you've got real skill and real flexibility. I think you want to have this ability to be mindful, to have, again, those secret Jedi night trips of leadership of being able to shift the energy and attention of other people. Do I have community in which I can just be me, that I don't have to produce, right? Uh, you know, and that I can be honest. And am I able to speak my truth in my organization or am I shut down? Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cardavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. We're back today in episode 87 with our special guest, Libby Robinson. And the title today is The Roots of Leadership, Critical Foundations for Conscious and Impactful Leadership. Libby has a fascinating career. Libby is the managing partner, chief heretic, and CXO whisperer of an organization called Integral. It's an award-winning leadership, executive coaching, and advisory company that works with Fortune 1000 companies globally. She's also, interestingly enough, a former Wall Street banker, aerospace engineer, and a national champion equestrian. She's been working in the leadership space for over 25 years, and she's clearly focused on conscious leadership. And what we're going to talk about today is the critical role of mindfulness and resilience in leadership. We're going to talk about how vital it is to work on ourselves as a leader, not just work on our people in our leadership. We're going to talk about the pace of leadership. We're going to talk about several ideas that Libby calls her secret Jedi mind tricks of leadership. And she's going to talk about this idea of building the roots of our leadership, the idea to really ground ourselves in who we are and how we are going to show up as leaders. It's another fascinating conversation. I know you're going to be wowed, inspired, and challenged today with Libby Robinson. Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. I am excited to be back here with another amazing guest. We have Libby Robinson with us. She is the founder of an organization called Integral, Integral Coaching. It's an award-winning leadership, executive coaching, and advisory company that works with Fortune 1000 companies around the world. Look at, listen to this, Craig. She's a former Wall Street banker, aerospace engineer, and a national champion equestrian. Sweet. Which basically means we can talk about everything but leadership and <laughs> all day, but we're gonna we're gonna lean towards leadership in all of this. 
And I know one of the things we're going to talk about, because Libby and I both have a passion around feedback Hmm. and helping to grow teams through feedback and doing it differently. So I know we'll talk about some of that. And the other thing that jumped out to me from her bio was this concept of conscious leadership. It's something, Craig, you and I talk about regularly. I don't think everyone really understands it, but it's all about taking a multidisciplinary, I'd call it a holistic approach to developing people and leaders. So welcome, Libby. Yeah, Thank you so much for having me, both of you. Great to have you here. So Libby, give us a little bit of the background story on you and your journey. Okay, I'll try to make it uh, a a quick, uh, you know, I was born, no. Um, (laughs) So uh, I worked, uh, one of my first uh, jobs was in aerospace engineering, software engineering for a company that was a conglomerate of the mergers, Allied Signal Bendix Aerospace. I got that job when I was a sophomore computer science major back in the day. And I won't tell you the long story about how I got that job, but I was really (laughs) pleased to have gotten it. And um, from there, uh, that was the kind of early to mid 80s, um, studying math and computer science. That was the dawn of real-time computing on Wall Street. So um, I got hired into Wall Street, not knowing the difference between a stock and a bond. (laughs) Um, Had to do my Series 7 license, which is the stockbroker license. It's a pretty extensive and difficult um, thing to get, but I persevered and was able to get that, which allowed me to be on the trading floors. And um, Mm -hmm. while uh, I had all of the qualifications to, uh, you know, be there as an analyst on Wall Street and eventually was um, actually analyzing mortgage-backed securities, you know, think the big short movie, um, (laughs) I found out that I was really just miserable. (laughs) I had more money than, uh, you know, my father had ever made. I had limos home. I had, you know, all the kind of, you know, things that Wall Street afforded young, smart folks. And I wasn't happy. And I started looking around for what was um, wrong. Like, you know, hey, I thought I had made it by my, you know, by my family standards. I was rocking. Um, And um, I found that there was a um, area of study called organizational development. Mm, yeah. Um, and at this, around the same time, I uh, found some work around personal mastery. Mm. Um, and uh, I met some people at a at a cocktail party in a Soho gallery. And literally, uh, they were everybody else was kind of very snooty. <laughs> and I looked, I I looked over at these people, and there's people in the corner that were having so much fun. And I was kind of like that, you know, Harry met Sally things like oh, I want yeah, whatever they're exactly. having. Um, wow. And I walked over to them and I said, you know hey, you know, you guys are seeming like you're having a lot more fun. And they told me about this work that they were doing. And I was like, uh, sign me up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think it was the conjunction of two worlds, which is I love business. I love business people. I love, you know, all that mm-hmm. story, whether it was engineering and aerospace or whether it was Wall Street. Um, but there were in those days, it was really missing the people element of, you know, how do you nurture and take care of and have people become more aware so that they can um, self-propagate and be better themselves without having, you know, lots of, you will, kind of mechanical intervention. How can they learn to become more mindful and resilient? So that's the quick story. Wow. Sounds like a fascinating journey. What I love about that is the the Soho Art Gallery. Because, (laughs) no, I mean, that was really rich to me that here you are hanging out with all the professional types. 
and you know you, you labeled them as snooty and i've been at those events but you found the group that was having fun and had that conversation which is really kind of what i do yeah like i look mm-hmm. around and say this is really boring <laughs> yes. but wait a minute let me you know in fact it's interesting because in my life's journey one thing that's been asked of me many times early in my career back when i worked for others was why do you they say why do you spend so much time hanging out with staff I said, because they're great people. (laughs) And I had more people experience richness in that conversation than with the professionals. Not that saying all professionals are bad, but I love that you, I mean, it seems so simple, but that's, it was a turning point in your life to just go have that different conversation. Absolutely. So one of the fundamental principles that we put in all of our leadership programs at Integral, and they're all, you know, custom, bespoke programs. Um, but one of our fundamental principles is relationship precedes results. Absolutely. Right? Amen. And so I say to people, you know, think about whatever achievements you've had in your life, even your kids, if you want, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and if you think yeah. about it, there's, you know, each, re- each accomplishment that you have had is always depends on some form of relationship, yes. right? And I was once working uh, with a group of Interpol leaders. So, um, and Interpol, uh, there's this guy who's like one of the top guys there. And he said, well, you know, I did my PhD in sort of like, I'm going to call it like imaginative physics or something. <laughs> and he said, and I did that independent study. And I said, then you had a relationship with the material that was second to none. You had a relationship. It just wasn't with a person. It was with something else. Right. So I think one of the things that I think is a, an important aspect of where we are now in this point in time in leadership and in learning is that there's a real scramble to um, commoditize, to spread, to democratize learning. Um, so we get this very sort of wide, a lot of content, but we don't get necessarily how do we develop roots yeah. and um, deeper relationships that really form fundamental achievement. That's interesting. So you talk about the relationships, and typically we think of relationships with other people. Uh, what about the relationship with self in this process? Mm-hmm. Excellent question. So I think that this is also um, something that is often missed in leadership. Like there's all these different theories, and everybody's, mm-hmm. you know, you throw a rock, you got a leadership consultant or a new right. theory on leadership, right? And um I think one of the things that we've often missed in leadership, because it doesn't look like it has a direct connection to performance, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like it has a direct connection to what I'm doing over here, is what does it take for people to become more mindful? Now, there's all sorts of apps and things out there for people now, but what does it actually mean? How does one wake up um, to... um, to the idea that I'm more than just a human doing, <laughs> that I'm a human being, and that I'm not just constantly reacting to the world like a pinball machine, yes. um, but that I have some choice over what I think, what I feel, um, how I am in the world. And um, uh, so I was introduced to this actually um, from that uh, cocktail <laughs> party folks, um, plus some you know, work I was doing in you know, just basic you know, Jungian therapy. But what do I notice about myself? And most leadership programs do not give sufficient attention to that. They might teach you how to meditate or they might, you know, there's all this kind of newfangled. I can give you this app and you can go do it. 
but really how do you teach people about the triggering events, you mm. know, and there's some neuroscience and I know you're the neuroscience nerd in this team and there's some neuroscience around, you know, you have about actually 0.6 seconds before, you know, you get an amygdala hijack. And um, so how do you teach people not to be um, just reactive, you know, automatons? And so that's, that's interesting to me. Well, it's interesting you say that. I'm going to say it's about five years ago. So not that long ago, a very close friend of mine was working with a training and development organization, I won't say their name, that on paper was cutting edge. And when I read about it, I thought, well, this seems like a unique program. I knew people went through it. Seemed pretty cool. And it was talking about conscious leadership. Mm -hmm. She gets in as an instructor. And it was, people would come for a week-long immersion. So they've got eight to 10 hours a day for seven days, right? She goes to the instructor and says, I think we should do something on breathing <laughs> and mindfulness. <laughs> and they said, that's an amazing idea. You know what we're going to do? We're going to give you 10 minutes a day. <laughs> and that was all they would give her because the rest of the content was so good. And when I heard that, I said, wow, you've just told me a lot more about what this organization is and what it's not, because you're still in that old ball game with some good stuff, but you're leaving out the, all this stuff that's so vital. And I think you're right, Libby. I think people struggle to find, they're looking for that direct, easy, measurable connection mm -hmm. that if we do this differently, we'll get this different outcome. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's there, but it's not as clear as some measures we have. Yeah, it takes a courageous leader. Uh, I worked with a chief operating officer in uh, a global organization, and um, he allowed us to design a program for his leaders. It actually it went started in the middle, went all the way down to individual contributors, and then eventually mm -hmm. went up to senior practitioners. You know, over the course of like seven years. Um, but in the um, foundations course, which was a three-day um, immersion, if you will, um, back in the day when you could meet and do that. He would stand up at the beginning of, of a lot of these and say, you know what? I have no idea. And I don't think this is actually going to help you in your day-to-day -day job. Said It might even convince you to leave the organization. And that's okay. He said, what I'm interested in is you, is you really using this time for yourself for you to really get clear about what you want in life and what you're committed to. Wow. That's and fantastic. that sponsorship, he was probably the best sponsor we ever had. Um, but people really took that on and the different programs that, uh, that manifest out of that, um, almost all. So this is a probably like 7 billion now, um, about 98 of a hundred of their top 100 leaders have been through these programs and it's really wow. the foundation has been mindfulness and resilience. Of course, there's other things that you add in, operational excellence, customer universe, people and team, all of the things. But the, the one thing I will say that's maybe different um, that we're shifting to, and I think have been like this, is that there's more of a focus on peer and social learning. Hmm. We There's so much content out there. You could download LinkedIn Learning or Mind Valley or anything else out there, what you need are the connections to be encouraged, to be challenged, um, and not just from a hierarchical standpoint or from HR. You mm -hmm. need this 
posse, if you will, and this group of people that you can go on a journey with, whether it's virtual or in person. So yeah. that's uh, that's where I think we're we're heading. I have to write that down. That was really good. <laughs> okay, uh, well, tell me what I said afterwards because I no, I really I well, <laughs> I really like the idea, and there's so much more of this unfolding. But you really got it granular. This idea, this isn't a hierarchical hi, hierarchical learning. It's not about HR's initiative. It's about the peers coming together and working and learning and growing together, which requires, I think, courageous leadership. It also makes sure there's got to be a level of trust built. And some of the things you talked about, the ability and willingness of someone to take a look at their triggers. I mean, I'll, I would grant you that most people, if we walk down the street right now and talk to 100 people and said, let's talk about your triggers, the vast majority would have no idea what we're talking <laughs> right. about. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to define that, right? You'd have to define it. And then they'd say, oh, yeah, I, I probably do that. And they'd be focusing on the act of triggering versus that whole deeper level of understanding what was the trigger what was and, and where'd that come from and how do I navigate it differently going forward what do I need to learn about myself how can I shift this whole experience by being more aware I mean I would say probably 95 percent of my coaching ultimately is about triggers mm-hmm. it really is mm-hmm. because yeah. that's how I've seen people transform when they can really understand those triggers and and shift behavior not as just turning it off, but understanding it. Yeah. yeah. So our methodology at Integral is is uh, founded around ontological um, worldview, ontological coaching. And ontological is just a big fancy word, just means the study of the way of being. And the way of being of an individual, the way of being of a team, the way of being of a culture of an organization. Mm-hmm. But it has three main domains um, that we can help teach these little um, distinctions for people to be able to to see. It's almost like they get a new language. So the first domain is around linguistics, right? So the technology of your language. So um, language isn't just the content of it. There are actually actions, right? Assessments, assertions, requests, offers, promises, declarations. Mm-hmm. All of this is the technology, kind of the architecture of your language, kind of the code, if you will, of the words. And So if we teach some leaders some basic distinctions in linguistics, like even just the idea of what's an assessment and, you know, what's an assertion, what, you know, what's a story, what story, right? You probably use this, Jeff, what story are you telling yourself right now? And we all, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And and what story are we living in? What story are we generating? So the Mm -hmm. idea of that we can be generative with our language and generative with our leadership. Um, so language is really important. Of course, you know, with all coaching, you'll see that, you know, emotional and social intelligence, we say to um, uh, people that most people can distinguish mad, glad, and sad. And that as a leader, what we want to be able to do is have a richer um, set of distinctions, kind of the music behind the words, mm-hmm. so that we are not just taken. Mostly we don't have emotions. Emotions have us, right? <laughs> and so the ability to be able to notice what's living emotionally in my body right and what am i generate what's the field of energy that i'm generating um as a leader as a coach you know as an individual contributor what what am i responsible for over here um and what's that impact uh is important then we also teach people about somatics and soma of course is just the greek word for body 
and it, it you know, it, it might be called executive presence, but even if you're not an executive, how you show up, what your body, even if we're all virtual and we're not having a coffee together, the pitch, pace, tone, breath, how you stop and use silence mm-hmm. um, is is important as a as a human being connecting with others. So I think that there's so much that um, is about mindfulness in leadership, but we've gotten lost in this kind of academia theory. Even the neuroscience, I will say, though I love the neuroscience, <laughs> um, that it just doesn't make it real. And I'll, I'll say one last thing. I was uh, coaching a, a mid-level manager at a technology company the other day, and uh, he's going to get a new set of, uh, he's changing, he's getting a new set of folks. And he's a he's an engineer by training, so he's always like, yeah, you know, they kind of have to prove it to me first, like before I'll trust them. And I said, you know, what if, what if you could just think of them like um, plants you have to nurture? Like they're going to come in, you're going to stick them in the ground. And if you do nothing and just wait for them and see if they're going to grow, they might, they might not. Right. But if yeah. you give them some sunshine and you give them some water and you talk <laughs> to them, you know, chances yeah. are, and he was like, I thought they just had to prove it. You know, it's like they had to prove their worth. Yeah. Like, no, that's a great analogy. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that come up for me on that. One, you were talking about the language and the mechanics of language or the architecture of language. But I think the the words that we use are so important and to have a shared language, because in so many organizations, after going through some training as a leadership team in one of the organizations I was with, we could all just mention a word and it would trigger this whole subset of stuff that came with that word which allowed us to be super efficient in our communication with each other because we knew what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And then I think, think the other side is the, the energy that you're talking about and, and being able to be a master of that to understand what's going on when something happens and we do get triggered and we start feeling something in our body and to be aware of that, first of all, and then to be able to take control of that and say, okay, I'm having this experience. This is the outcome that I want to have rather than, you know, I'm going to blow up either intentionally or I can choose to do something else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think one of the uh, recommendations I would give any team, you know, even if they're just listening to this podcast for the first time is that so many teams do not take a, I'll call it kind of a timeout to look at the standards and the processes by which they work. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend any team once a quarter, you know, says, what are the standards by which we work? You know, what are we agreeing to? And are we living up to that? And do we need to modify? I'm sorry, are you talking about a team charter? Yeah, it could be a team charter. It just could be, you know, you might call them ground rules. You might call Mm -hmm. them, you know, ways of working. Um, But so often everybody's so busy in the content of getting something done that they forget. And then what happens is you get those breakdowns, you know, like if I don't respond, you know, Craig, to your email, you know, within five nanoseconds, you're like, what the heck? Right. You know, and, you know, maybe I'm working on a standard of 24 hours or I'm working on a standard that something else, if we, we have often teams have what we call missing conversations and they're often about the way of working, not the, what we need to get done. Like everybody mostly knows what we need to get done and they're, they're interdependent on each other. So that's one thing. And the other thing that teams can do really easily 
um, is uh, to do a check-in and a check-out at meetings. Mm. You know, not a, every yeah. single meeting. We're big fans of that. But just making sure that you get that um, sense of where everybody is, because you don't know. You yeah. don't really know until you ask. Wow. Big fan of that as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Leadership Junkies podcast is brought to you by Cartevera. Cartevera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartevera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartevera.com. Welcome back. A question that comes up, you've used the word mindfulness a number of times. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, how open are you finding organizations and leaders literally to that word, even more so than the concept? Because I know over the years, I've often felt and chose to approach my work as like a Trojan horse, <laughs> avoiding some of the words that I felt mm-hmm. like they were not open to, but knowing that once we got into the work, we're going to do the work without labeling it because I just know there was resistance to the word. So what are you finding today around that language of mindfulness? Well, I think we've taken maybe, uh, you know, one and a half steps forward and about a step back uh, in the sense that um, people know the word mindfulness. There's a ton of apps and things out there um, and they think it's a thing. (laughs) They th- okay, so just let's do a workshop on mindfulness, right? Or let's, um, where I think what we should be talking about is leadership as a practice. Absolutely. Right? And so, um, you know, just like surgeons have a practice and consultants have a practice, there is an art of practicing. And so you need to be able to, there, there's, a, there's a real knee jerk, I think, to create an HR tech stack that gives all these things to people and just go, go and do it, please. Versus cultivating a community and organization, even if we're, you know, countries and continents apart, creating community where people are going to want to help each other. Um, and so I would say to you, mindfulness might not be the word. Um, it, it, it depends on, on the leaders in the organization. I think we're making some progress, but it's, um, the hard, the hard thing is when the CFO says, you know, what's the, you know, the ROI on this? How can you, how can you for sure, you know, trim out all the variables and prove that this has done it? And I think you only do that in a qualitative way when you've got leaders who are willing to say, yes, this actually changed my life. It seems like several of the things that you're talking about here require some margin, you know, that we have that not everybody is doing two jobs, but they have a little bit of time to actually contemplate what's going on and assessing along the way. How do, how do people get that margin? Mm, that's a great question. You know, there was um, a friend of mine who had a phrase, and I think it's somebody else's quote, but it says, a busy man always has time for more. <laughs> and This is the first element of conscious choice. We're all busy. We're all overwhelmed with content, with news, with family, with COVID, with whatever crisis you want to do. (laughs) So, right, just with life. And I think that that's a um, a symptom of something. Um, So 
getting people to stop even for 30 seconds, mm-hmm. you know, having them, uh, you know, I'm meditate a few times a week, but maybe for five or 10 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, a day before the dog, you know, jumps on me or <laughs> something else happens, you know, um, I don't think it needs to be um, a huge practice. Um, and again, I would say community people will come when they don't have to do it all by themselves. You know, people will, if they don't have to carry the whole load by themselves or, uh, so I want to reinstill this idea that organizations, um, are networks of community and networks of conversation. And that the more that we can engender this idea that we're not alone, we're so often alone in front of our screens now, uh, that the more that we can create that connection, the more likelihood we're going to have more courageousness, more compassion, um, more mindfulness. So what about the, I guess, looking at the different perspectives of the speed that we're at. So here in the United mm-hmm. States, we have, we have a speed. Now, certainly you were working on probably the most high speed environment of all, which is the trading floor. <laughs> and then you lived in Paris for 20 plus years. I would imagine that's a very different pace. What, how, how does that play out to the organization being in different pace? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that really speaks to different, you know, both organizational and, and national cultures. Yeah. Um, but I want to challenge you a little bit on the concept of pace. Okay. Yes, there are, um, let's just say, um, you know, the ontology, the way, the pace of the way this place is, mm-hmm. right? Kenya's got a different place, you know, pace than Paris, and Paris has a different pace to some extent than New York. Um, but what's my own pace at any one time, and do I have conscious choice over that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the first place that we can see. Do we all need to be lounging about in a hammock in Thailand? No, probably not. But I think we've bought into this idea of the overwhelm and the speed when one of our other principles at, at um, Integral, uh, along with relationship proceeds results, is called go slow to go fast, mm, yeah. which is we yeah. know that we can't, we know from the neuroscience, multitasking is not a real thing. Um, and so that the idea of being able to manage a leader's energy and attention, because mm. we, we call this... Um, the secret Jedi night tricks of leadership. So, um, sorry, George. Um, but he'll probably come and sue me someday when I make, you know, (laughs) write a book on that. But, um, uh, so I think pace is a leadership choice, Mm, right? Absolutely. Pace is a leadership choice. So there may be times where you say to your team, every moment counts, only work on the one and two high priority things, let everything else go. Or, or they're a, they're a self-organizing team where they just know that. They can just feel mm-hmm. the change. So we shouldn't always think of pace as just being one thing. And that leaders have a responsibility to not just push, 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 push. And in fact, if that's all you are, you're not really leading. You're just kind of a bulldozer. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You talk about that, <clears throat> the pace, contact, and speed. I think we have a cultural addiction to it. There's still a... a <laughs> pretty ingrained belief in the U S at least that going fast creates more and better results. Mm -hmm. I've said this exact same thing. My phrase is if you want to speed up, you have to slow down. Mm -hmm. That's how you speed up by slowing down. Mm -hmm. And and I realized in a context out of work just a few years ago, 
where I was at a retreat contact. I do a lot of retreats and I realized I was often running. <laughs> and I thought, why are you running? And, and I stopped running and said to myself, like as a going forward principle, leaders don't run <clears throat> unless it's life or death, which mm -hmm. it almost never is. Leaders don't run. And so it told me that whenever I'm running, I'm not leading. Yeah. I think so that's I a can great catch thing. myself in that moment. Say, oh, wait a minute. I'm not leading right now. I'm doing something else. Mm -hmm. Stop. Slow down. Because what's the leader's job? Leader's job is to see things, to, to understand things. To, you can't do that when you're going so fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You also can't connect yeah. with people along the way if you're running past them. Of course not. Of course yeah. not. I have a dear friend of mine, Stephen Tallman. He's the CEO of Bain, so a large professional services consulting company. He's been there for thousand years. Sorry, Stephen. Um, and when I first met him, we had met in India. We were both doing some work there and through a mutual friend. And um, a few weeks later, we got on the phone to talk. And he's like, you know, tell me about Integral and things like that. And, um, and I talked to him about mindfulness and resilience and, you know, our custom leadership programs and things like that and what we were doing. And he said, that's fascinating. He said, here at Bain, we just did this major research about what made our partners, you know, our top partners successful. He said, we did this whole regression analysis. We did all these interviews and we found that there were these 33 characteristics. I said, uh-huh, okay, 33 <laughs> characteristics. And he said, yeah, but, but wait, you only needed to have three of them. I was like, okay, that's good because I would have never made it as a main partner. <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, it could be any three except one of the three had to be this one thing. And I said, what is it? He said, mindfulness. I said, oh my God, you've just proved my entire reason wow. <laughs> for doing work. He said, so that's like my favorite story. You know, here you are, the McKinsey's, the Bain's, the BCG's of the world, trying to look at map, analyze what made their best partners the best. And it, it was a diversity of talents, except for one thing. So um, to me, that's the story to tell, uh, you know, to sell mindfulness. And, uh, you know, it really is a question of, I think you've heard this, I'm sure before, you know, um, says uh, CFO says to CEO, what if we do all this leadership development and training stuff and then people leave, you know, yeah. and C CEO says to CFO, what if we don't train them and do this leadership development stuff and they stay? Right. Yep. So that is well, so mindful. so true. And mindfulness is, I think, part of this is educating leaders in a good way on what it is because they have preconceived notions of it. First of all, a lot of leaders think it's woo woo. They think this is some sort of a spiritual practice. And I'm not saying there's not elements, but as soon as you label it that way, the, all these walls come up. Like your example, I think someone who is willing to take a look at themselves and slow down enough to do that. That takes mindfulness to do that. Mm -hmm. When you look at, um, here's an example. I was speaking some time ago to a group of business owners. And during the program, I was talking about making time to be really present for your team. Just be yeah. present with them because if you're present, you'll be more curious. If you're present, they'll feel seen, heard, valued. And about half the group said, well, what are some of your tips that you would su suggest if we have trouble finding time for that? Mm. 
And I heard that and I said, well, let me be honest with you. You don't need a tip. Right. You need to understand the impact of what you're doing and not, because when you don't make time for your people, they feel unseen, unheard, unsafe, unvalued, unprotected, and they go into fear mode and all they do is protect everything and they're not engaged. I can guarantee you that's the outcome. And, and they they're can't looking argue for another job. It, well, actually, most of them are actually staying because they're terrified. I think more <laughs> people quit and stay than actually quit and leave. Oh, that's my opinion. Wow. Good point. We look at the numbers. I think more people quit and stay. You have organizations unwilling to address that or un, not mindful enough to say it's on us. Mm. And you got the other issue of we don't move people along who have quit. But I think to me, that's mindfulness because you talk about the return. If some leader wants to look at me and say, you know, I don't see a financial return on our people feeling seen, heard, valued, and safe. If they don't see a return on that, then get the hell out of the chair. Mm-hmm. I, I, leaders. You know, what kind of link you want more? I, I get that it needs to be qualitative, but it's hard to argue that that's the impact of how we lead, whether we're mindful or not. Well, it kind of comes back to, are you going to be a human leader? Or are you going to be a, a manager, you know, who, who sees everything as, as black and white? I mean, ultimately there's, there's an aspect of the human condition of, saying, hey, you know, there's value in the relationship. There's value in caring for the other people around me rather than just, is this going to make dollars and cents? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, to some extent, I think that we're really at um, a breaking point. Um, we need, a, as a coach, I want to say that um, we have an obligation, I think, there to go out and find organizations um, uh, to help bring more human leadership to the forefront, um, to find the quali- you know, the researchers to be able to prove what we know empirically. Um, and uh, because we're at this sort of tipping point, because you've got the, you know, the, the uh, overwhelm, you've got the pace and speed of technology and change. Yep. To some extent, you've got a generational, and you could have, uh, you know, a generation of leaders that are all just stuck into their, you know, iPhone or iPad or, you know, things. And that's a real risk because you will have lost this ability for people to be compassionate. And um, yes, the numbers matter. Yes. You know, we are a capitalist society and thing, you know, we need to produce value, but it's counterintuitive in some cases, what, you know, how we produce value. And I think um, it's important to be able to continue to say that I think our politicians need coaches you know, and leadership development. I think oh there's gosh, yes. some of, you know, I, I, I think there's a reason for us to be out there shouting from the rooftops um, that mindfulness and resilience is a critical leadership skill. Yeah, but I think it comes back to what you said at the very beginning, people precede results. Relationship. A relationship receive, precedes results, yeah. And I think, yeah. I think, you know, when I heard that, Libby, I have to tell you, I agree, but I have an and. Hmm. And I love what you said about the um, the guy from Interpol who said, I did this on my own independent study relationship with materials. Because I sometimes wonder, and we talked about on the podcast last week with a guest, that companies achieve success by a lot of measures. And maybe even usually financial success. 
without doing these things. That I think that's a reality. And I think one of the challenges companies and leaders say, well, what there's nothing major to work on because we're winning. Mm-hmm. But at the expense of their people, and I think part of the challenge is their results could be so much magnified yes. by these shifts, but they're winning the game. And so I wonder if there's leaders who actually would say, you know what, Libby, we're ne- we're killing it with results and not based on relationships. Yeah, but mm-hmm. which game are you playing? That's mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would venture to guess and I've seen this in other organizations where they are killing it at the expense of um actually, you know, physical being. Um so look at how many members of the executive team have underlying conditions. Hmm. How many people have recently been diagnosed with X, Y, or Z? You know, obviously HIPAA, you can't know these things, but you know, when you're coaching within an organization, you start to see people, you know, and dropping like flies, or you look at, you know, the attrition rate at lower levels of the organization. There's, you know, you can see the leading indicators of, you know, that kind of a result. I'm not saying that um, we should all do woo-woo anything. Um, you know, I, I believe that it's important to, you know, have a successful business. I think what, what people miss is that when you have an, you know, engaged learning, you know, self-propagating, interested community of learners and leaders, then you've got, you've got gold and, you know, there's lots of opportunities there. So, um, I don't worry about selling it. There's enough organizations that are starting to come around to that. Um, you, you don't need to, you don't need to preach to the choir. You only need to preach to the hummers, you know, the ones that are sort of want to be in the choir. Right. And then the ones that are, you know, late adopters, let them be. Libby, you're talking about what's really going on behind the scenes in people's lives and in their health. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part, if we can create an environment to bring that out. I remember not that long ago, I was facilitating a retreat for a forum group. There were seven business owners, and I would say that if you talk to them about the business, they all had growth ideas and all this, but they were very successful in their business. Mm-hmm. They were. And, but here's the question I ask them. I ask a lot of people on these retreats. I'll say, what's one thing that you could change in yourself that would have the most positive impact in your leadership and your life. Hmm. Didn't surprise me, but it kind of shocked me a little. Four of the seven said, drink less. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, if that's not a a, a statement of what's going on, Mm -hmm. and, and I applaud them for being in a space they felt safe enough to share. This was people they knew and trusted. Four out of seven. Now, would the if after the first one says it did that change some others very possibly, but you've got four out of seven people business owners saying, you know what I might have an issue here, mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of issues like that going on in our lives. We live in the most medicated in the United States, most medicated country in the world, and this is not just medication in terms of disease, which is part of it too. It's all the other drugs we're taking, whether they be prescription or non-prescription, legal or illegal. It's the most (laughs) medicated country in the world. Yeah. And that's, I think, what you're getting at. It's what's going on. 
our last podcast guest is, was, is a pharmacist. And he was talking about how, you know, you probably see 70, 80% of people are dealing with some sort of, you know, anxiety or other types of issues that they're medicating for. Mm -hmm. And it's how much of that is our fault as leaders to not mm -hmm. help people either cope with it or to provide mm -hmm. an environment where they feel safe, connected, and taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, I think we may have lost uh, some of the um, elements of community as we've become, you know, globalized organizations. Yeah. Um, and it's I, a lot of people are suffering a lot of different things. And I, I don't think that organizations, for-profit organizations or even nonprofit organizations have to be there to, to take care of someone from cradle to grave. Right. But I do think that we need to be able to, as leaders, have language um, that embodies, you know, multiple ways of being. Sometimes it's compassion. Sometimes it's, you know, strength and clarity of boundary, but people uh, reducing suffering and fear in organizations is a, is a big thing. If you know how to do that, um, then you've got real skill and real flexibility. I think we want to have this ability to be mindful, to have, again, those secret Jedi night tricks of leadership of being able to shift the energy and attention of other people. And the only way you can shift the energy and attention of your coworkers or people you work for or people that work for you um, is to have to be able to manage the energy and attention yeah. of myself. So being able to be honest about what am I suffering? You know, what am I suffering? And that usually part of that suffering has to do with my own story about my own suffering. Um, do I have community in which I can just be me that I don't have to produce, right? Um, you know, and that I can be honest. And am I able to um, speak my truth in my organization or am I shut down? Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, so many areas here, but I just think this is a propitious time to be looking at leadership. We have um, a whole generation of, of uh, leaders, I think, that won't be like, uh, you know, the generations before them and, and have some interesting talents. Uh, and, but, connecting, giving them kind of, again, roots and not just, you know, Hey, I have, you know, this many people on my Facebook or my LinkedIn or my Instagram. Um, and how do we connect, yeah. uh, in a way that's meaningful, I think is, is useful work in the world. No shortage of it. Well, it sounds like the word that comes to mind when you talk about the roots is, is mastery. Mm -hmm. And I think about, okay, we're, we're really mastering that. I think one of the other things that we were talking about as well was, you know, in this, day and age where we have people working in all sorts of different places and we don't have this common space, um, looking for that good role model. We had mm -hmm. a podcast guest early on, Larry English of Centric Consulting. And Centric is a company that's a thousand employees plus, um, and they are totally virtual. They have no offices. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting that they consistently get you know, awards for their culture that, that, that people there would call it a family environment and they mm -hmm. invite mm -hmm. the entire person to come to work. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Here at Integral, we call ourselves a tribe. There you go. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's our chosen family, if you will. It's, uh, you know, yep. near or far, 
that's what we have is the integral tribe. That's good. So, I, you know, Libby, I'd love to talk a little more about a word you've used a lot today, but we haven't focused on it. Mm-hmm. And it's resilience. Mm. And there's a lot of talk about resilience. In fact, uh, a guy I know on LinkedIn pretty well is he's a resilience coach. And we had an interesting exchange going on a lot of people yesterday because someone wrote an article that he shared that mm-hmm. said that the gift of COVID is that millions of people are more resilient today because of COVID. And my response was, I don't agree at all. Now, right. I, I, we get into the numbers. I think what happens is people think if they go through a difficult time, they're now resilient. And right. I don't believe that at all. I think resilience yeah. is a very intentional, thoughtful, mindful process because otherwise I'm just surviving. I got through something doesn't mean I'm resilient, but yeah. some of the old language might say that, well, I, I got through this. So what are your thoughts on resilience, especially during this time of this pandemic? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I, I just, uh, I wrote down resilience cause I was just, um, looking at it. It's kind of, if you think of it, it's like almost like, um, re and some form of silence you know how do we come back to a place of quiet in our mind in our body in our spirit and um uh i think that mindfulness has different attributes than just kind of you know getting through it you know there may be some element of resilience you might have some physical resilience if you you know, run 5k every day or something like that. You might be able to, you know, your muscles might have a muscle memory of that. I think resilience also has a language, um, uh, around it, uh, that, and also has a set, a set of emotional, um, ways of being right. So, um, resilient language is I'm not feeling well today, but I know tomorrow is probably going to be better. Right. There's a, there's a, a, you know, an inherent optimism or now I won't, say, you know, kind of over the top pink unicorn, Pandora-ish or Pollyanna-ish uh, um, optimism, but, but there's this idea of acknowledgement and an intentionality of something changing. You know, on an emotional level, you know, you practice resilience when you don't give in to your triggers, where you don't just, bah! you know, right. you know, fight, flight, or flee in there and so that you're building this place where it says wow you know god this doesn't feel like i wanted to this wasn't my my place what do i want to do now what in that space of choice and so again i think the practice of resilience is that right there's the old buddhist uh, phrase which is you know fall down 99 times get up 100 and that's the physical element of it which is um it, uh, to to never you know to to have a body that's resilient doesn't just mean I have to be you know muscles and things like that. It means the kind of spirit that inhabits my body. And I don't mean that in a religious way, but the my ability to you know go the extra mile or finish something late at night um, that I need to finish for the next day. That those are all elements. So I I think just to be more thoughtful about resilience and how we build our own body of resilience in our own language of resilience. It'll be different for different people. Well, I, th- I love that. I think that it's such an important conversation because to me, when people assume that something changed, there's a good chance it didn't change. Mm. Uh, it's kind of like learning. I think actually learning, people say they learn from their past experiences. 
but I know for a long time, I really didn't learn anything. I said, well, I had an experience and I basically assumed I must have learned something, but I keep repeating that experience. Tells me probably didn't. I'll, um, I'll say one other thing about roots and one of the things that I also meant. So just to, just to show how we all have different takes on, on, you know, the language that we live in, you know, for roots, roots are never usually just one root. It's a system of roots. So when I think about rooting leaders, mm-hmm. it's also that they have a, a support system, a, a nutrient yes. system, that they're not just superficial and doing these things up mm-hmm. here because it's on LinkedIn learning or, you know, whatever. And I'm going to do a two minute nugget of learning. Right. It's how can I also inhabit my body, inhabit leadership, have a community of practice and, um, you know, be a loving human being that makes mistakes and is, you know, can, can also do great things. So I think, you know, just that, that's, that's what I'm trying to evoke a little bit with the idea of rooting leadership. Gotcha. So when we go, I want to jump back a little bit to resilience. And one of the things that came up for me was the aspect of flexibility and mm-hmm. um, think of, think of a rubber band, think of something that, that can absorb versus repel. And so when we have something that's, that's hard, it's oftentimes brittle and more fragile than something that can flex with, with some pressure. And that allows us to respond. To me, that's, that's kind of the picture that I see of resilience. It's, mm-hmm. it's not that you know, I'm, I'm standing up in the, in the storm as much as I'm able to move with that storm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's, I really like that. And I, it, what flashed to me is a number of years ago, I was at one of these retreats that I do. It's a men's retreat. And there was a gentleman there, very large physical man, uh, I mean, bigger than me, and I'm pretty big. <laughs> uh, and all I picked up was his from was anger, mm. a lot of anger. Uh, and you could tell he had a lot of leadership in him because he even he was trying to disrupt the retreat mm. by forming a tribe because you oh, could wow. tell people would follow him from that place of really power. And I'm not sure it was really healthy power. But you just, in fact, at one point, I mean, he threatened to leave a couple times. He, he threatened me physically once because mm-hmm. I was holding him accountable and I wasn't being pushed around and I wasn't yeah. doing anything. I wasn't doing this. I was just holding ground. Yeah. And, and that really upset him. But what was interesting <laughs> was, to your point about the, the brittleness, you could look at him and say, what a strong leader and a strong person. But when it finally came out, and he really opened up and got vulnerable. What he shared was, everybody's always looking to me to lead. Yeah. I just want a break. <laughs> I don't, but I don't trust anybody. I just want mm. someone to have this that I don't have to have at all. Wow. And mm. when he found that, it, it was a beautiful thing he did. And, and he got very emotional, but it was all buried under because he felt like he had to be strong and he had to hold it together. Yeah. But he was crumbling inside. And that moment was so beautiful and it was interesting. We laughed in a good way because this is the guy that wanted to punch us in the face, literally. And by the time he left, he was hugging everybody. Like he was just like his heart had finally said, it's okay to show your heart, man. And you don't have to do it all. People people got your back. But I think a lot of leaders who say, I feel like I'm alone. They've created that. Because yeah. they've not let anybody be there around them and support them. Mm-hmm. They got it. 
There's a myth around leadership and that's something when we don't teach, we often promote people who are really good as individual contributors and then they go, oh my God, I don't know anything. You know, I get the imposter syndrome and (laughs) I have to lead, you know, Um, and I think we do a disservice to young, young potential leaders by not giving them that community. Well, and I think that's the leaders back to their own mindfulness of realizing that's what they're teaching their people. Because so many leaders complain to me about how their people are. Mm. And my line is always the same. Well, congratulations. You're the one that taught them. Yeah. What well, have I didn't you done do that. That's not that what I want. Well, but I can assure you, if you're really the leader here, that's where they, they're picking it up from. Yeah. Or they came with it and you have not told them a different message. Yeah. But it comes back to you as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. It's about taking responsibility for what's going on. I mean, if we are, you know, there's, there's two signs of leaders, you know, Jeff and I talk about the positional leaders and then the people who are really, really doing the leading and in, inside an organization and it can be the, the last person on the totem pole, so to speak, but each person has that opportunity. And, you know, to what degree does the positional leader take, responsibility for what's actually happening in the organization. Libby, this has been amazing. I I had a sense it would be, but I got to I have to tell you, you know, we talked a little bit yesterday and I really still did not see the richness that was mm-hmm. going to come today. Uh because we, I probably were talking about a lot of logistics, but just love the conversation. I love your approach to leadership. And, and frankly, I'm grateful that there are people like you and your organization out there doing this work, yeah. being courageous, because what you said is shouting it from the rooftops. And what we do, that takes courage, because mm-hmm. we can either play the game and deliver what people say they want, or we can deliver something that's going to make people unsettled and disrupt some things. And every, you know, to me, that's leadership as well. So thank you for your leadership. Yes. You're most welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. So Libby, we always want to have our guests uh, have an opportunity to uh, promote something or anything going on in particular with your business or your life right now. Oh, well, there's, there's uh, two things, I guess. Um, one is we uh, have a, a community of practice uh, for uh, coaches or leaders that want to learn, um, you know, ontological skills. And so this is called the Advanced Coaching Practicum, and uh, it's uh, completely virtual. Uh, and so people can uh, join that. There's a kind of a foundation, sort of an undergraduate track for people that don't have any experience um, with ontological work. And then there's a graduate program um, that actually sort of weaves simultaneously. So we have a dojo approach um, to mm-hmm. learning. And uh, if you're familiar with that, so, uh, and the story behind that is, uh, very quickly, um, I went to go sign my son up years ago when he was little uh, to for Aikido. And I went to the dojo and uh, they didn't have little kid classes for him, but I wound up signing up for the adult class. And I came, you know, I don't know, a couple of days later, I bought my gi. I walked on to the tatami and um, there were 25 black belts and me. <laughs> I had walked into the most prestigious dojo with a fifth level down fifth level black belt in aikido in all of france um and but everybody did the same moves everybody did the same thing so when we bring the community of practice together 
um, for ontological coaching and ontological leadership, um, we have white belts and we have black belts. We have, you know, people who really are just learning, you know, the, the distinctions in ontology and we have master certified coaches and people like yourself with, you know, a whole ton of experience. So it, it winds up being really fun. Um, we've got uh, diversity scholarships with that. Um, so we have a woman from Nigeria. We have somebody from the federal government, which I'm really excited about. Um, you know, we've had people from, you know, Eastern Europe and different things. So it's, that's the advanced uh, coaching practicum is probably one thing that might be interesting to some of your leaders. Um, and uh, what else? And, and we didn't really talk at, at all. Oh, yeah. And how would somebody that. find that? Uh, integralcoaches.com okay. slash ACP. Okay. Or I think, honestly, if they Google advanced coaching practicum and my name, or integral advanced coaching practicum integral, they could find it. Okay. So we'll put it in the show notes as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and then the other thing that we didn't talk about, which I, 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 you know, this is, um, uh, I, uh, finished a program at Stanford university on corporate innovation recently. Mm -hmm. And as, uh, something that I've been working on and Jeff, I know we talked about this a little bit, uh, yesterday is our love of this concept of feedback or my love and hate of it as the case may be. And um, over, the, over the last bit of time, we created a, an app that's free. So uh, any of your listeners could download it or use it today on the Google store or app, app, uh, Apple app store um, called Backfeed Plus. And uh, Backfeed uh, Plus is an app um, that basically is for better, faster feedback. And the idea is it's based on neuroscience, um, which is, it's stressful, we know from the neuroscience and the social research, it's stressful to give feedback. It's stressful to receive feedback. And that the only time your brain is less stressed is when you proactively ask for feedback. Hmm. So we have a little app that makes it really easy for people to create their own little tribe um, to be able to ask for feedback, not just written, but audio and video. Hmm. Um, and, to, and that's completely um, secure so that your you know IT guy isn't looking at what so-and-so saying so-and-so. And then it's really based on this, that it, if I want to develop, I ask for it because essentially I'm neurologically more primed to um, be ready to receive that feedback. If I ask you, if you just come over and say, Hey, I'd like to give you some feedback on that meeting. Um, of course, we know it's going to happen, which is my threat response is going to come, come up. So there's a lot of work out there about, oh, I would love to completely disrupt and get rid of shoot chop uh, all 360 degree feedback programs, all of them. Um, and uh, sorry, if you're a 360 guy. Um, and if I could get rid of that, if I could disrupt that part of the learning and development world, I'd be a happy camper. Wow. So those are two things that are going on. All right. And, and they can find that on your website as well. Uh, yes. Uh, well, no, the uh, um, backfeed app is www.backfeedapp.com. There's an on-demand demo there. People can contact me. We also, for podcasts, we also give uh, organizations that have, um, you know, that want to, to try it. We'll give them two months free for 20 licenses. So if you want to play with it, if you want the kind of enterprise analytics, the basic app is free. You could download it now and use it with your teams. But if you want sort of all the fancy bells and whistles of um, customizing questions and getting, you know, seeing the engagement and, um, we also have a feedback score, so it also amazing. helps. 
also helps people uh, teach, uh, learn how to give better feedback and creates that sort of roots system of encouragement uh, and getting each other's back. Well, wait, we're supposed to encourage people, not just beat them up? Yep. <laughs> yep All right. I was on a podcast, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and the guy said, you know how I, I give people feedback? I give them a paycheck. Wow, that is, that is. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's That's like the 501 class. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, that's a whole, that is a whole other topic. It's a, it is a sad state of affairs. And I often, in audiences I'm speaking to, will give an example of, um, call it positive feedback. Encouragement. I call it a blessing without using the word blessing. Mm -hmm. I've had people cry when they hear what I say about them. I don't even know these people. And to me, what I share should be the everyday experience. Yes. And most of them say, I've never in my entire life gotten anybody that said what you just said or like it to me. And they to me, it. that is just normal. It wasn't even special. Um, so it's a sad state of affairs, a whole nother topic. So Libby, I'm curious, you mentioned your website. What's the best we, way for people to connect with you? So they want to reach me directly. Uh, they can email me at Libby at IntegralCoaches.com. Uh, but the website for Integral, if they want to see uh, you know, some more videos and things about mindfulness and resilience, www.IntegralCoaches.com. And of course, Backfeed is www.BackfeedApp.com. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. And, and Libby, we always wrap up with a question, one of our signature questions. And the one that's coming up for me today is, imagine that you have the opportunity to have dinner with someone who's living. <laughs> Who do you want to have dinner with? And even more importantly, what's the one question you want to ask them? Hmm. I was wondering about this question for days now it's like the vault question what is it going to be oh my god um give me a second i i'll be honest with you i'm a bit of a political junkie so um you you will my my thought is that i would want to um have a conversation with somebody quite senior uh in in the political realm and uh but actually, now that I think about it, it might be Stacey Abrams of Georgia. Um, young, you know, has done amazing things. And I, I would like to see what she sees in the future. You know, what what does she want, need? Like, oh, my God, I'd love to coach Stacey Abrams. Not that she needs that much coaching, but to be a safe space for a leader like that hmm. um, would be, you know, and again, whatever side of the aisle you're on. I have no problem with Republicans at all. Um, I, I, I think, uh, how could we create curiosity and dialogue and real movement at the top of our leadership of our country's leadership? I mean, here we're leadership folks, right? That would not, um, demean the other side, but would really look at them as partners in uh, moving the country forward. Um, and so yeah. there you go. Love that. Thank you. And thanks. Thanks for being here, Libby. And thanks for all the wisdom you've shared with all of us, including me. Yep. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Craig. Jeff.
If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartavera Tribe. The Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.